Good morning, friends. I don't know if you remember two weeks ago I had to use paper, but uh, the saga of the lost tablet has been solved. It was in my truck under my seat. So it was with me the whole time and just didn't know it. Kind of like the Holy Spirit, you know. What a great story we just heard read to us on how the Lord deals with the circumstances in front of us that this family was dealing with. And what we learn from this story is uh, very important to our Christian life, to our walk, daily walk with Him. Two central experiences of the Christian life are faith and failure. If you're a Christian, you've experienced both. Um, maybe at the same time. But we are called to successfully live by faith and experience God's blessing. And then, of course, when we fail to live by faith, we, we miss God's best, don't we? All of us are required to live by faith. That's one of the things that we're told in Scripture. It's what the Christian life is, living by faith. And as we walk by faith, we're faced with that constant possibility of failure, of not trusting God as we should in every given situation, not believing what he has told us to be true about our circumstances, or not valuing things as he might value things. Those are called failure. Today's story teaches about these two important things, faith and failure. Within this lesson of faith and failure are also lessons on how to deal with those times when we blow it, which we inevitably do because we're still living in the flesh. My hope and prayer has been uh, for you that the Holy Spirit will take this story, this powerful story, and stir your heart, stir our hearts to a deeper level of commitment, deeper level of faith, which would be evidenced by humility and dependence on your Savior, on our Savior. So I want you to walk away this morning with a deeper level of commitment to walking by faith, which will be evidenced by greater humility and greater dependence on Jesus. So let's look at the story in detail. Let's unpack this uh, bit by bit, and I think you'll see uh, what I'm trying to communicate. The first, we see a demonic condition. It's obvious, isn't it? That's <laughs> what it's called here. This is what we see right in front of us. A spirit, an evil spirit, seizes my son, the father said. But the contrast that I want to draw your attention to, first off, is that great contrast between the passage immediately before this one and this one. What happened immediately before this experience? In your Bibles, it says that Jesus was on the mountain of transfiguration with Peter, James, and John. Then they come down the mountain and engage in this situation. Talk about a contrast. We have divine glory at the moment on the Mount of Transfiguration. 
contrasted with the demonic darkness of the valley. We have the splendor of the company on the mountain contrasted with the squalor of sinful unbelief in the valley. And these contrasts are real and significant, but are only a faint picture of the environment change that Jesus voluntarily undertook when he left heaven, when he left glory, to come take on human flesh and be with us and walk in our world. Now that's climate change, if there is such a thing. When Jesus arrived at the scene in this story after being transfigured, just literally hours before, he asked his disciples and, and the scribes that were arguing with them, what are you guys arguing about? And did you notice that no one in those two groups wanted to answer? It took someone from the crowd shouting out the answer. Um, well, if these guys aren't going to say it, I'll tell you. <laughs> it's like that, that ornery little tattletale sister that you have. What the two older brothers were arguing about was this, Dad. That's what, exactly what was going on here. <laughs> the, uh, the scribes knew better than to debate Jesus, and the disciples were ashamed of the situation. They were embarrassed, I think. So someone from the crowd shouted out the reason they were arguing, and, of course, that person was the father of the son in question. And so let's look now at this demonic condition as it's displayed. The condition of the boy, it, it's extreme, isn't it? According to Matthew's account, this father got on his knees and begged Jesus, says, I beg you to look at my son, for he is our only child. So this was the only child this father had, and he was in this condition, which would make, of course, this father desperate. Um, this is a sad picture that we read about. Think about all that this young man was going through and that his father and mother were enduring. This boy was a deaf mute. He had painful burns, scrapes, and bruises all over his body because of what the demon was doing to him. Uh, Satan had tortured him for years because the father said he's been like this since a child. So he was probably a teenager or somewhere in that category. The physical appearance of this boy was just like the spiritual reality of every human being, though. Think about that. We just don't know it. We don't know this is actually how we are, bruised and battered and tortured by the enemy. Satan has had opportunity to uh, mask these things in our experience of life. And of course, Satan's goal is to maim and abuse all of God's creation. Doesn't take long to figure this out, right? You just walk anywhere in Yakima and you'll see it on every street corner, almost. Satan uses the world to promise great things only to deliver heartache, to deliver addictions, dysfunction, broken relationships, mental illness, and ruined lives. How's that for payoff? And this young man, of course, is a physical picture of the consequences of sin. And I'm not saying he experienced this because he was a sinner or he sinned. I'm just saying this is a picture of what sin does to humanity. This boy's life story shows the real struggle between Satan, 
who incidentally is called the destroyer, and Jesus Christ, who is called the author of life. Here they meet face to face. Now let's look at the condition of the disciples in the story. Um, And of course, the disciples' condition is actually more in focus in this story than the condition of the boy. Even though the boy's condition hits you in the face, the disciples' condition is, is the issue that Mark, the author, wants you to see and wants you to grapple with. Because those reading this book were Christians in Rome, and in this room were Christians in Yakima. And Mark knew that Christians would be reading this book. And so his focus is on the condition of the disciple's heart, actually more than the condition of the boy. Um, and you might ask, well, why, why, John, did you put this point, the condition of the disciples, under the heading of demonic condition? Well, where does all sin originate? We know, right? From Satan, from our arch enemy in the garden. All sin originates there. And so we can legitimately call the failure of the disciples to live by faith a demonic condition. It has demonic roots. Mark wants us to see that failing to live by faith looks just like this. You want to know what failing to look like faith looks, live by faith looks like? Here, look closely at this story. What do we see in the lives of the disciples? Never mind the boy. In the lives of the disciples, what do we see? We're going to learn that they were independent, independent of Christ, thinking they could do things on their own, which is a form of arrogance. And then their pride is revealed in their debating with the scribes. We can just imagine what that debate was like. Um, And then, of course, the obvious thing, ineffectiveness and being able to solve the problem, being able to solve the chaos. All signs of not living by faith. This is what it looks like. Now, translate this into your life. Are you independent of God? Do you live independently of God day in and day out? And if not, how do you know? Do you demonstrate arrogance in your Christian walk by living independently of God and the necessity of the Holy Spirit? Do you spend time debating spiritual matters or religious matters on Facebook with people who may not even care about Christ. What do you see in your life? Okay, we can, we can always do this in Scripture, right? We can look back at the characters of, the, of the Scripture and say, oh man, look how bad they are. And rarely do we turn the focus on ourselves as it should be. So the primary focus of Jesus' condemnation in verse 19 that we see when he says, oh, faithless generation, how long am I going to live with you? Is the disciples, because the focus of the story is the condition of the disciples. They, they, these disciples, they had, they had been with him over two years. They had witnessed his ministry, had been given power to cast out demons themselves. Remember back in Mark 6, 
They were casting out demons. This was focused at them. This word of condemnation from Christ when he says, oh, faithless generation, how long am I going to be with you? And, and that, by the way, how long am I going to be with you simply means how long is it going to take you to learn this stuff? I mean, you've been with me over two years, day and night. When are you going to learn is the question. And we'll get to this a little bit, but how long have you been walking with Christ? And what is your daily experience when it comes to walking by faith? So it, it actually is a bit out of bounds to, <laughs> to point our fingers at these faithless disciples, isn't it? Well, let's look at the faithless condition. And you might put a slash mark right after faithless and write in human. The human condition, the demonic condition, the human condition. And I say human because we are naturally without faith. Faith is a gift from God. And so after the fall, uh, and by the way, before the fall, they walked by sight, remember? Not by faith. But after the fall required faith, and that's something that none of us have naturally. Requires a gift from God. And so this is really a human condition, this faithless condition is. Uh, and as I said, the point of Jesus' rebuke was to communicate to his disciples that their failure was based on unbelief or lack of faith. This unbelief was painful, I think, for Jesus to see, which is why he said, oh, faithless generation. Why was it painful? Because he would soon be leaving this young group, um, and he knew that for their good and, and successful Christian living, they were required to have faith and live by it. And if they were going to be successful and effective apostles, which they turned out to be, faith, living by faith, was a basic requirement, prerequisite. So you can see why he moaned the way he did about their performance. So back again to the question, how long have you walked with Jesus? How strong is your faith? Is it proportional to the length of time you've walked with Jesus? It's a sad scenario when you hear someone, I've walked with Christ since I was nine years old. Really? <laughs> this is kind of what Jesus is saying here. This is kind of the rebuke. Do I live in such a way where I would hear from Christ if he walked into a room in a given moment? Oh, faithless John, how long is it going to take you to learn this? How long is it going to take you to remember that I am sovereign over all things in your life and you're complaining about red lights? Really? You're complaining about the person you sit to in school? You're complaining about fill in the blank? Really? How long have you been walking with me? When I get frustrated with logistics, I'm not trusting in the sovereignty of God. When I get frustrated with other people's driving, I'm not trusting in the sovereignty of God. When I get frustrated with people not getting in line as I think they should, I'm not trusting in the sovereignty of God. When I'm a little concerned about my health, as if you're never going to die, uh, 
is not trusting in the sovereignty of God. Not living by faith. So the question now, we've established the failure of the disciples, and I think we've established along with their failure our own. Why did they fail? What precipitated their failure? What precipitates ours? This story tells us. The first is this, confidence in prior success. Do you recall they had already cast out demons in Mark 6? You remember that? Remember you used to live by faith? <laughs> remember that time when you actually trusted God in a crisis? That's what's going on here. It wasn't as, as if these guys were novices. It wasn't as if they had never cast out a demon before. They all had. And that this is a common source of failing to live by faith. Past success. I'm really good at this. I knocked it out of the park last time <laughs> I encountered this deal. Living by faith isn't related to prior success, though. It requires constant diligence, practice, dependence on our only source of spiritual strength, which is the God of heaven. The second reason that they failed to live by faith or walk by faith in this story, and the second reason we do as well, is their absence from the presence of Jesus. In their case, the physical presence of Jesus. In our case, the spiritual presence of Jesus. He, he wasn't there. Where was it? And the, these nine guys that were left in the valley that didn't go up on the Mount of Transfiguration were left by themselves for a day. And that's part of the story. And part of the the objective of the Holy Spirit to teach us that we need similar presence with Christ to avoid this kind of failure. He wasn't there, Jesus wasn't, to give them wisdom, guidance, spiritual strength. He was up on the mountain. And this experience taught these disciples a very important lesson that we must be with Jesus. You remember in, in, in Acts chapter 4, um, Peter and, and John and James were in the Sanhedrin and standing before them and answering questions and asking, uh, being asked all sorts of reasons they were doing what they were doing. And the response of the Sanhedrin was this. And now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. They'd been with Jesus. And by this time, Jesus had been gone a lot longer than 24 hours. They remained with Jesus, even after he was ascended into heaven. And how'd that happen? You remember? Jesus said, I'm sending you a helper in John 16. The Spirit of Christ, the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit of God. These unsaved religious leaders recognized that Peter and John had been with Jesus. 
As Christians, we can become complacent in our walk of faith for these same two reasons, confidence in prior success and absence from Jesus. And we might be saying things like, ah, I've, I've done this a thousand times, I know how this works. I've taught Sunday school to these kids over and over and over. Who needs Christ? Who needs the Holy Spirit? I, I know the story of Jonah, for Pete's sake. Um, and I was at church last Sunday. I don't think I need to open the Word of Christ, which is the Bible. Today, I, I, I've read it enough. I, I know what it says. Um, I think I can live in communion with Christ. I can walk with Christ in faith without actually being every moment in his presence. Might be thoughts that cross our minds. What could possibly go wrong? Jesus has only been gone for 24 hours. So we have a demonic condition. We have a faithless condition. Now let's look at a divine condition. And I'm using the word condition here differently, so I'm kind of throwing you a curveball, so I'm going to explain it to you. Because if you're not expecting a curveball, you never see it. You strike out, pretty much. Isn't that right, Jesse? You've got to be able to see it. So uh, the first two are conditions that were in existence. Uh, the demonic condition, the faithless condition, the divine condition is a condition for success. In order to be successful, you must fulfill the following, that kind of condition, okay? So Jesus told them to bring the young man to him, and when they did, the demon began to convulse this boy, terrorize this boy like he had done, except on an extreme level. The, the language that Mark uses here in verse 20 is graphic, in the original language especially. Uh, he, he has the use of verbs that, that are ongoing, something that we we use like running is something that you do, like it's an ongoing verb. And this here in verse 20, he brought the boy to him and we saw him, he immediately convulsed the boy. That sounds past tense, like it happened, it was over. No, it was convulsing, it kept happening, it kept repeating itself. It was graphic language that Mark wanted us to see. He kept foaming at the mouth and Jesus kind of puts the moment in freeze frame. Isn't this interesting? Have you, did you notice that first read? Jesus kind of, in the midst of this horrific display, Jesus calmly turns to the Father and says, how long has this been going on? It's like, you know, I'm amazed at emergency room nurses and doctors, you know, blood going everywhere, and they're going, oh, what happened again? Uh, did you sign in, by the way? You know, like, and I'm going, <laughs> my throat's bleeding, you know. Uh, this is kind of what we see here in Jesus. He's going, uh, how long has this been happening? Uh, nothing can phase me type of response. But in, this, in the middle of this frightening display, he calmly turns to the Father and asks a very practical question. How long has this been going on? And of course, Jesus already knew the answer to that question because he's God. Um, he asked the Father this question because he was actually more interested in allowing the Father to express his deep pain and letting those around hear the deep pain that the Father expressed. And then watching as the Son of God demonstrated divine compassion. 
and divine kindness and goodness. This is what God does in the midst of human pain. He solves it. He solves our chaos. And Jesus wanted to make sure that the Father, the Son, his disciples, and everyone present recognized it. That God is good and kind and compassionate towards sinners. And, and, and the way that sin has affected the human race burdens his heart. And it says that this boy has been experiencing this from childhood. And you wonder, well, it's, and the father said it, it, this, this demon tries to throw him into the fire and the water to try to destroy him. The demon's been trying to kill him for years. Um, but the reason he wasn't able to was because God was sparing this boy for this wonderful moment when Jesus would rescue him. So that it would bring glory to God's son so that it would bring glory to see the transformation of not only this boy in a physical sense, but his father and his disciples. And, and I would suspect many of those onlookers who weren't believers until this point. God, God saved this young man's life so that in the touching of him, many would be changed, not just the boy. <clears throat> and we see not only the weakness of the disciples here in this moment, but also the weakness of the Father. And if he had any faith at all, it was certainly weak. And he reveals this, his weak faith by his comment to Jesus about whether or not Jesus was able to do anything about it. Did that strike you the way it did Jesus? Um, he says in verse 22, it casts him into the fire and into the water to try to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us, please. If you can do anything. And that's why Jesus responded with this kind of shocked exclamation. If I can? Are you, are you serious? Um, so he, this father revealed his lack of faith here in this moment. But this desperate father wondered if Jesus would be able to solve their chaos. This is severe chaos. God, now, can you deal with this chaos? I mean, this is serious. My husband just left me. I was just diagnosed with cancer. I mean, can you handle this is the question in front of us. You remember earlier in the book when the leprous man came up to Jesus and, and said, if you are willing, you can make me whole? He knew that Jesus could heal him. He just wasn't sure if he was willing to do so because he was an outcast. He was a reject. I don't know that you'd be willing to heal someone like me. Well, the father of this demonic boy in this story wasn't sure he was able. So is God able and willing to meet us in our chaos. And what's his answer to both of those questions? Yes and yes. That's the answer. So when we turn to God in our crisis and we say, Lord, are you able and willing to deal with this and even me? 
These are two critically important questions that Jesus then and now resoundingly answers yes and yes. These are the same questions we ask, or at least think, in our crisis, in our chaos. Unfortunately, our preferences for chaos solutions aren't always the same as Jesus's. We might think that the answer to our financial chaos is to get a raise or win the lottery. God's answer to our financial chaos may be to spend less money. We may think that our family chaos would be solved if God would miraculously change our spouse's or our teenager's attitude, when God's solution may be to address your selfishness. No, I think it's my husband's attitude. I think it's my teenager, I mean, look at him. When the father in this story openly wondered if Jesus were able to help him, he said, if you can, and Jesus' <laughs> reply wasn't so much of a question, but kind of a statement, if you can, <laughs> really. Uh, all things are possible for one who believes. And what a teaching moment this was. And, and it wasn't <laughs> uh, by chance that this happened, right? Everything that happened in the life and ministry of Christ, and by the way, in your life, and ministry is ordained by God. Um, and so this was ordained, this was scheduled event in the life and ministry of Christ and it was a perfect setup for Jesus. This lesson to those watching, particularly the 12, was critical to learn, it's critical for you to learn. Do you want to access God? Do you want a actual relationship with God? It requires faith. You want God to answer your prayers? It requires faith. The disciples weren't going to be effective witnesses unless they walked by faith. And they learned it on this day. Clearly. They would need faith to remain faithful in the face of opposition. They needed this kind of faith to minister faithfully throughout their apostolic careers. You need this kind of faith to be a faithful parent, to be a loving spouse, to be a helpful servant in the church. Keep in mind that we're talking about prayers that will bring glory to God, not glory to you. Right? Well, you can say, you may have been saying already, Pastor John, I've been praying about this new BMW for quite some time now. Well, God isn't going to grant your prayer for that new BMW so that you can impress your neighbors or give you that pay raise so you can chase even more of the world. Uh, that's not the point of walking by faith. <laughs> um, God is in the business of glorifying himself and changing us into his image, which brings glory to himself. Any prayer that falls outside of those objectives are unlikely to be answered in the positive. So let's look at the condition of faith here in the first condition that we see. <clears throat> the condition of faith. We know that 
failure is part of the learning process, right? You figured that out by now. If you're older than eight, you've got that figured out. That failure is part of the process, and if you don't learn from failure, you're really never going to amount to much. And this is especially true in the Christian life. And we see this in the story of Mark 9. Uh, now, I'm going to say something obvious, and hopefully, try not to laugh. Uh, you never grow beyond your need for Jesus in the Christian life, ever. You never get to that spiritual plateau where you can put it on cruise control and head to glory the rest of your life. Nope. Sorry to disappoint you. These disciples had physically walked with Jesus for two years and learned a great amount, and they still needed to learn their constant need for Jesus. The story reveals this graphically, doesn't it? And another thing is, this is a sidelight, but one thing that we can gain from this story is our spiritual failures are never without impact on others. You know, we may think that our sin is private and has no effect on those around us, but that's never true. Even if it's the most private of sins, it affects those around us. Our sin, for example, impedes the work of God in us and through us, even if it's an ultimately private sin. It affects the name of Christ in our homes and in our communities. It brings damage to our relationships. Any and every sin affects us that way. And I think we know this in our hearts, but we like to think that my sin is just my sin. It's not going to really affect anybody else in the room. But it does. It seeps out and into all of our relationships, including our relationship with God. So... Um, what do we do with our sin? You try to hide it, pretend it isn't there, blame it on others, or do we take it to the one and only one who can solve the sin chaos in our life, Christ Jesus? Did you notice one good thing that the disciples did here early on in this story? As soon as Jesus showed up, they ran to greet him. They ran to him. In their sin, in their ineffective ministry, they ran to Jesus. They, they knew where to go. Do we? we? We need to practice running to Jesus at all times, especially in failure. So we need Jesus at all times. He corrects us as only he can do in his word through his people. Um, we need Jesus. Secondly, we never get beyond our need for faith. We never get beyond our need for Jesus, and we never get beyond our need for faith. Hebrews 11.6, you remember what that says? He who believes in God believes that he must exist and rewards those who earnestly seek him. It, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Hebrews 11, 6. So how much faith do we need to live the Christian life? Does our faith have to be perfect? Do you have to be that perfect, faithful Christian? Well, what does Jesus teach us about this? Well, what is your trajectory in life? 
What's the direction of your Christian walk? Is it Christward or worldward? Jesus doesn't expect perfect faith. Here, for example, he continued to love and minister to and through his imperfect disciples. He healed the son of this father who had imperfect faith. So what's the trajectory here? He wants humble and honest faith acknowledging our constant need for him. This is why I said you must learn from failure. Um, you, will, you will have more failure in your future. Um, you're going to learn from it. Jesus doesn't expect perfect faith. He just wants humble and honest faith. David Platt said this, the key is not the depth of our faith, but the direction of our faith. What is important is not the potency of our faith, but the person of our faith. What's your trajectory? What are you looking at? Which, which way are you going? Is it Christward? And of course, dependency is also in focus here. If we keep our eyes on Jesus, we'll realize that we actually need him. And when we take our eyes off of him, we lose sight of him and the realization that we need him. But Jesus wants us to remain in him. He wants us to rest in him. This is what verses 23 through 27 are about. This kind requires much prayer, much dependency, much Jesus. Um, so Jesus responded to this hurting father with an encouragement to be dependent on him. Everything is possible for those who believe, he said to the father. And of course, that wasn't only directed to the father of the demon-possessed boy, but also to his disciples and to you and me. And this isn't uncommon in Scripture, right? You've heard this before as you've read your Bibles, like Psalm 34, 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed or happy is the man who takes refuge in him. A dependency on God, a dependency on Christ and the Holy Spirit. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. The father of the new best boy had a frail faith, but and an imperfect faith, but, but God's not limited by the, the depth of your faith or the depth of this father's faith. He, he's not limited by um, imperfect faith. God can still perform things in you and through you and in others around you with imperfect faith. He healed people all the time who had no faith at all. But that doesn't give you an excuse to not be faithful. Let's look next at the condition of humility. We have these conditions, these divine conditions that I've been sharing with you, the condition of faith, now the condition of humility. How important is humility to God? God opposes who? The proud. Humility is really important to us and to God. Unless you want to be opposed to God and him opposed to you, Humility is critical. And this was, of course, another lesson in this story, the necessity of humility. And when a person realizes their dependence, it assumes humility, doesn't it? Yes, of course. The nine disciples that were experiencing this challenge tried to lean on their own understanding, like the verse 
that was part of our confession this morning. They tried to lean on their own understanding, their own strength, their own know-how, and they failed miserably. And one of the greatest responses of all in, script, in all of Scripture is this. I, I love this in verse 24. Highlight it if you haven't already. This, the father in this story is as humble and as honest as it gets. I believe, help my unbelief. Do you ever pray that? <laughs> Get used to praying that. Pray that quickly and often. Uh, he doesn't pretend to get it like you did in ninth grade math. Um, he, he doesn't act like he's got it together. Uh, the reason I didn't say I did in ninth grade math is because I didn't take math in ninth grade. I wasn't ready until the twelfth grade, I think, for math. But he doesn't act like he's got it together. And, and I think there's... <laughs> something distasteful about a Christian who thinks they have it all together. It, it, it feels off because everyone, every Christian in their heart knows they don't. That's why they come to Christ. That's why we all come to Christ is because we don't have it together, right? <laughs> the father here humbly and honestly says, my mind knows you can do whatever you want, but my heart is unsure if you're able and willing to do this for me. So he pleads for Jesus, help my unbelief. What would our church be like? What would your small group be like? What would your marriage be like if there were 100% humbly, humble honesty? Wouldn't that be awesome? If we were just honest with our struggles, honest with our needs, honest with our dependence on Christ, Instead of, eh, yeah, I got that, I, I already did that. I, I read, already read this morning quite a bit. <laughs> you know. And then finally, the condition of prayer. Here's another divine condition. We, never need, we will never get beyond our need for prayer. There's that cruise control idea again. You think you can ever get to the point in your Christian life where you can just push the cruise button? Nope. Nope. And, and prayer, what is prayer? It's simply a... a demonstration of dependency, isn't it? That's all it is. Failure should always lead us to examine our faith. Have our eyes been on Jesus? Have we been in prayer seeking his wisdom, guidance, and strength? Failure should always keep us humble. Without me, you can do nothing. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples, John 15, we read earlier? It was the prelude meditation. Without me, you can do nothing. And so, the disciples asked Jesus, how come we couldn't pull this off? And Jesus laid out what I just laid out for you. Probably took a little longer than I did. But this is what he told them. You must be humble. You must pray. You must be dependent on me. He made it clear to his disciples that human power is unable to have any effect on the spirit world. Do you think that you can minister to your children, to your spouse, to your fellow Christians at this church, to the people in your small group, um, on your own efforts, on human wisdom? No. These disciples had obviously neglected these things. Um, they had approached the whole scenario in human confidence, in pride, in independence, 
So the valuable lesson they learned that day was that humble, dependent prayer is the only way to access the power of God, to walk by faith. So, friends, Sun Valley Church, how are you walking? What, what is your Christian life about? You can, you can do all these things. You can teach Sunday school. You can go home and parent. You can, you know, do a lot of these things that might fool the people around you. But God's blessing, spiritual blessing, divine blessing, only comes through divine strength provided. So you may be, may be able to fool your small group and your spouse into thinking that you're walking with Christ or that you're serving with his strength but you really have no spiritual fruit from those efforts you'll wonder after living like this for long periods of time where the spiritual fruit is why aren't I seeing people come to faith around me why aren't I seeing my children grow in faith why aren't things more transparent in our small group what's happening here well what are you doing how are you walking by faith? Are you walking by faith? Friends, we, we must de depend on Christ Jesus. He must be our source. Our ministry at Sun Valley Church must be bathed in prayer. We must acknowledge to God and to each other that without him, without him we can do nothing. You know, we do not want to be a church who, who would take a year and a half to figure out that the Holy Spirit's gone if he ever left. How long would it take us? How long would it take you to figure out the Holy Spirit has departed once he has? We must be committed to prayer if we want to see God bless our families, our churches, our lives. Which is why we have prayer meetings from time to time. During the school year we have a monthly. Our next one is Sunday the 18th, I think at 530, is that right? 5.30 is when we do it. So put it on your calendar and just demonstrate your faith by coming to the prayer meeting and praying for God's strength. We meet right in this room. Friends, we have the Lord's Supper now in front of us and what a wonderful time it is for us to think about these things and to acknowledge to God our failures to run to Jesus with our failures, with our disappointments, and just lay them at his feet. The Lord's Supper is the perfect time for that. Having walked in our own strength and wisdom for whatever length of time, the Lord's Supper, if there is ever a time, is the time where we can rectify that direction, where we can acknowledge our independence and run to Jesus, who is presented to us in biblical form with these elements, the broken body of Christ, the, 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 the spilt blood of Christ, here represented in the elements, remind us in, I think, dramatic ways uh, our need for him. Not just need for the forgiveness of sins, but the need for spiritual strength. They're, they're meant to be taken, right? What, is, what do you eat food? Why do you eat bread and juice? For strength, spiritual strength and stamina. This is, this is what 
this is doing for us spiritually. It, it's, it's a picture of God feeding us, his children, to give us strength and nourishment, spiritual nourishment, so that we can walk by faith. So, Christian, if you know Christ, if you've embraced Christ, not if you're living perfectly, not if your faith is perfect. If your faith is imperfect, you need to be the first one down here. <laughs> All right? Uh, th this is for people with imperfect faith who need nourishment, who, who need support of the Holy Spirit, who need direction from the wisdom of God in their lives. So I'm going to ask the elders to join me, and we're going to serve you up front like we have become accustomed to. And um, you'll just come take it and then return to your seat on the outside row and um, take the elements when you're prepared. But I'm going to read the words of institution uh, for you from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11. And uh, I want you to listen to Jesus' words here recorded by the Apostle Paul, and then I'll pray and thank God for these things. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant <clears throat> in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. In other words, remember Christ. <laughs> Remember Christ Jesus. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, into the world 2,000 years ago to walk in our shoes, uh, to experience the, the sinful conditions of our world, and to supply the need that we so desperately have the need for Christ, the need for his work on Calvary, his shed blood, his broken body, his forgiveness of sin, his promise of, of all these things. Lord, uh, we, we run to you now. We, we grab a hold of you. We believe your word when you say, without us you can do nothing. We believe that to be true. Help us, Father, hang tightly on to your son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Come forward.